Hello there, and welcome to episode three of the Letterpress Digest podcast. In this episode, you will hear from Jim Moran. He is the museum director for the Hamilton Woodtype and Printing Museum. You'll hear him talk about his own background, his family's very rich history with printing, and he also talks about what it was like when the museum had to move everything, not by choice, uh, to a new location. And by the way, that includes moving somewhere around 1.5 million pieces of type. You'll hear how he sort of volunteered his way into the position as museum director. Uh, and there's also some really fascinating history about the Hamilton Wood Type Company itself, including some of their savvy entrepreneurial tactics and even tracing its roundabout path to present day. Jim's got a long history in printing and a really clear passion for ushering into present day. So I, I think you'll really enjoy this episode. Okay, here we go. Jim, thank you so much for joining the show. Oh, you're welcome, Jordan. I really appreciate the, what you're doing and the opportunity to talk a little bit about Hamilton and letterpress in general. Absolutely, yeah. The goal is really we're just gonna we're just gonna talk shop for the next hour or so. Um, so so you are the museum director of Hamilton Wood Type. Is that correct? That is right. I've okay. been the director for about eight and a half years now. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, so tell me a little bit about your background. How did you, how did you get here? I grew up in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and my dad and my grandfather were both printers. So, um, uh, I suppose like a, a lot of people whose family owns a business about, uh, age 10, I started going to the shop and, uh, just kind of hanging out. But there was that sort of magical thing where I could set my name in uh, some metal type and then print it on a little card. And, mm -hmm. you know, it, it was sort of a, uh, a magical thing to see that type turn into a printed piece. And I have to say that the enjoyment of that never has left. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, um, you know, I, uh, I was employed at the place uh, from age 16 onward. And I, like, I think anybody who, uh, who grows up in a business, I, I tried to leave a few times because I needed mm -hmm. to sort of do my own thing. But, mm -hmm. um, every time I left, I found wherever I went, I was printing. So, um, <laughs> I, uh, I pretty much worked with my dad until, um, he retired and sold the business to me, which was probably uh, right around 91 or something like that. So I kind of came up through the ranks. It was a small business, um, which meant that you had to do everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, while there wasn't an official apprenticeship program, it was still very much one of those things where, you know, prove that you're competent with a broom before we let you put type away. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, so it was, it was really great. I think, um, that, you know, once I, I kind of realized that I, I was enjoying it and, uh, I suppose to some extent I wasn't good at anything else. Mm -hmm. Um, I, uh, 
uh, I became, you know, a full-time employee and, uh, and then a partner. And so in 2001, I had to close the, uh, business, um, because small print shops were, you know, kind of going the way of small hardware stores or, you know, drug stores or something like that. Mm-hmm. You suddenly were competing with the chain. So it was a lot like, say, having a hardware store and watching Home Depot go up next door. Right. Um, so anyway, the Woodtype Museum opened in 99. And in 2000, my dad came in one day and said, you should donate this particular machine to this new museum. And I knew nothing about what he was talking about, uh, despite the fact that I had been pulling out uh, Hamilton uh, cabinets and cases for years. (laughs) But um, so I donated this ruling machine, um, an 1895 piece of equipment that put lines on paper. And um, so that introduced me to Hamilton and I thought it was pretty interesting and continued donating family equipment to the museum. And eventually I would try to find paper for them or ink or things like that. And then my younger brother, Bill, who was a uh, design graphic design student in the Western part of the state, uh, took quite an interest in the museum as well. And so uh, between the two of us, we began volunteering more, and he put together the history book on the museum. And um, so we would come to the museum on weekends, and we would print for them or just clean and try and keep the place organized because, uh, number one, they needed the help. Um, mm-hmm. It was strictly run by volunteers at that time. So if we would do a little bit of printing for the museum, if you came back three, four months later, those proofs you put on top of a press might have been untouched in all that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, we always felt bad because we thought the museum had such potential. And so we would always leave thinking, you know, you could teach classes there and you could run a conference and you could do all these things. Um, I had moved on to other commercial shops in Green Bay doing sales and marketing, which for me wasn't really the path that I wanted to go down. And so I really stepped up my volunteering in uh, probably 2007, 2008, and finally decided, you know what, I just want to get a job there. And so um, I... uh, I basically applied for it, and it turned out the director that they had then did not want the uh, job, so our timing was perfect. Um, And then early in 2009, I became the director, and uh, that meant I was the only employee of the business. So there was a lot of freedom, but Mm -hmm. um, many, many tasks to go along with it. Yeah. Wow! Yeah, what a what a history. Um, it's it's really fascinating. You, it's your entire sort of life, I, I guess, almost has been printing in some way, shape, or form. But you've seen that transition from the, I, I guess, the analog to digital in many ways, right? When you talked about your shop in two thousand one, and probably a lot of the big digital presses are you know way more efficient, and a lot of people haven't quite grasped yet the the tactile appreciation of letterpress like like it has today 
I think you're right, Jordan. You know, it was um, such an interesting time as you moved from the 80s to the 90s to the the aughts, I guess we can call them. But you were trying to keep up with an industry that had been uh, maybe not static, but, you know, letterpress um, had such a long history and once the changes began, once the computer entered the picture, the changes became really dramatic. And you had offset printing, which was getting better and better. And okay. then the copier was introduced. And I really recall going to customers and saying, a photocopy is not as good as a printed copy. You know, you, you have to be willing to pay for um, either letterpress or offset printing because it's uh, so much better and that was a losing argument because while it may have been initially true it kept um, being less and less true because the quality was improving and you had ways of setting type that had certainly left the linotype behind and um, even yesterday for example there was a guy who was in and we were talking about early photo typesetting and these were like badly developed prints because while you might have had a good image to uh, set your type and make a plate from they would brown over time as the uh, quality of these things deteriorated and artwork could not always be used even twice because it had degraded so much but mm -hmm. you know it was a drastic change and the equipment was remarkably expensive mm -hmm. but on the other hand it kept going down in price so that was a good thing but the unfortunate part is you had to jump in somewhere whether that was in buying a copier mm -hmm. or um you know paying for typesetting that was being done on new equipment right and um so it was really a difficult time i know it put a lot of people out of business and of course like a lot of things, people saw letterpresses being quite obsolete. Mm -hmm. And so you were trying to contend with the fact that certainly offset printing was the way things were going to go. But um, when you were small, like we were, trying to afford the changes in that equipment was uh, a really difficult task because you might find uh, a given piece of equipment was um, say fifty thousand dollars one year and mm -hmm. twenty five the next, and then ten thousand the next. Well, right. if you invested at the beginning, you were kind of out of luck. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it seems like you know, if you, uh, if especially for maybe for smaller shops, from the transition to I guess letterpress to offset to digital happened so fast that you know, if if you waited a while to invest in offset, then immediately you know you're competing with digital printers almost you know a few years later and. How do you keep up buying those big, expensive presses to stay up with the technology? So, Right, right. And, you know, offset printing was firmly in control even in the 60s. And so the 70s basically meant letterpress was wholly obsolete. The machines were being used primarily for bindery services, uh, scoring, numbering, perforating, die-cutting. And at our shop, we would use it for those very things as well. But there was a little bit of use for them where, let's say, you would run 
10,000 business cards on your offset press, but you would imprint individuals' names on letterpress. At least we were. So um, I guess the the upside for me there was that it allowed me to continue doing letterpress at a certain level, even though on the day-to-day job you were primarily an offset printer. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, okay, so the museum director of Hamilton Wood Type. So what's the background of Hamilton? Uh, what, where did, uh, yeah, what's, what's the background of Hamilton? Well, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I can give you a really long answer, but, um, <laughs> you know, the, uh, the thing about Hamilton is that they began making type for the printing industry in 1880, and this was wood type. So its use was as display as opposed to text-based type. And the biggest use of that stuff was newspaper headlines. Mm -hmm. You could hand-set the text or linotype set the text, but uh, wood type was being used in everything from billboards to handbills to broadsides and, of course, newspaper headlines. And Hamilton made a name for themselves by creating a brand new style of type, which was uh, veneer-based. And that's simply because Hamilton didn't know any other way to do it. He was asked to make his first type merely as a favor to a newspaper editor in Two Rivers who could not get type in time for a specific job. So what you have is American wood type makers almost exclusively on the East Coast, and while Hamilton was sort of in the middle of nowhere, he creates uh, a type that works so well that he starts selling it at half the price. But think of Chicago, Detroit, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Milwaukee, St. Louis. All of those towns need a massive amount of type. And if Hamilton is getting it to them in half the time at half the cost, Well, he grows at an alarming rate, at least if you're a competitor. And what that eventually meant is within about 10 years, Hamilton is driving his competitors out of business or merely buying them out. And within 12 to 15 years, he's got a lock on the entire U.S. market. So it's quite a success story. Mm -hmm. But even that is something of a double-edged sword, because when you put all of your competition out of business before 1900, um, you know, here we are in 2017, well, where do you go for the history of the making of type? And the rest of those people have been gone for over 100 years, whereas Hamilton Mm -hmm. made type remarkably late, I think. They um, continued until 1985. And we joked that that's because the Mac came out that year. But, (laughs) um, you know, it it is curious that you're in a digital world and you're still making wood type primarily for show card or um, poster presses. Mm -hmm. But even then, they um, sold their operations to someone who opened it on the north side of town and they continue making type. Right. Till ninety three. Well, well, let me and well, let me ask you this: sure. what What does veneer based mean? Um, great question. <clears throat> wood type had been primarily made by routering a solid block of wood on a pantograph. A pantograph is a tool that has a template 
and then a router. So as you trace a pattern, the router is cutting the type. Um, that was a great way of doing it, and in the end, it was the best way to do it. But Hamilton didn't know much about that, um, and because he was good with a scroll saw, what he would do is sketch out characters on a thin veneer, typically holly, because it was a strong, flexible wood, and he would cut that out on his scroll saw and then take that thin veneer and slap it on whatever block of wood was convenient, and there was your type. Mm. So it didn't have the durability of rotor type, but on the other hand, we're talking about you know, 50 years or more of the type lasting as opposed to, uh, you know, maybe uh, 25 years or something. So mm-hmm. Hamilton was remarkably successful with this stuff because the printers, number one, couldn't tell the difference. It worked just as well, and it held up at a really high level. But as Hamilton bought out competitors, he was very good at saying, well, this is a better method. Let's adapt or adopt that. And so when he bought out his last major competitor, he abandoned the veneer method completely. So while it was a new way of making type, it in some ways had a relatively short life because Hamilton went right back to what the others were doing. Hmm. Well, so what do you, I mean, was there a particular business reason he just, he was, was he just trying to undercut competitors when he offered it for half the price or was it just that it cost half as, it was half as expensive to make it with the veneer? You know, it's a little bit of both. I think that in the end you find a guy who was very smart from a business standpoint and he realized that all of these cities were exploding in size So he had very close markets, and therefore the single advantage of proximity uh, came into play. But, yeah, the other one was purely, you know, if you start selling your product at half the price of everybody else, well, you know, they're going to take notice. And so, uh, yeah, it's absolutely a way of undercutting the competition and taking advantage of the fact that you had those two things then, um, half the cost in half the time. So, yeah, he was pretty shrewd. I believe that once he sort of conquered the market, he jacked his prices up. You know, so <laughs> he wasn't uh, he wasn't selling it cheap because he was kind. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Well, okay. So, is this the the same Hamilton? So we, uh, for instance, in our studio in our house, we have a Hamilton manufacturing company type cabinet. Is that the same Hamilton? Right. So what's happening, Jordan, is that, again, Hamilton is quite innovative, and it begins with the simple concept that if you sell somebody enough stuff, they're going to have to put it somewhere. Mm -hmm. And while there were other type cabinet makers, Hamilton went into it in a huge way. And I think the idea is he could become something of your one-stop shop. And if you were going to buy a lot of wood type from Hamilton, here was a cabinet to put it in. And the thing of it is, even in the earliest years, what they were making are cabinets for the spacing material. So we're talking about reglets, which are thin strips of wood, and furniture, which are fat pieces of wood. Mm -hmm. He had a background as a... uh, 
a carpenter of sorts. He was working in a chair and tail factory before Hamilton. And if nothing else, he was good with wood. So from the get-go, he was making small pieces of furniture, and they refined that to a really high degree. And in the process, sort of standardized the printer's furniture. So they were making type cabinets and uh, furniture and reglet cabinets, and then they moved on to things like composing tables, which is uh, a strong, generally square table that you would lay out your form on. But he also had a partner who uh, was a dentist. And Mm -hmm. in the end... A type cabinet is really just a set of skinny little drawers, so why not move on to dental cabinets as a sideline? And that took off as well. But in that same way that he wanted to provide everything you needed for the printer, he was going to do the same thing for the doctor and then the dent or the dentist and then the doctor. So they they create an entire furniture line, which is what sustained them over the years and. Mm you have a huge variety of things that Hamilton made out of wood. And so it's not just that cabinet that you own, but it's drafting tables and it's composing tables and Mm -hmm. um, a lot of other fine cabinetry. So that in essence is, is what they became to be a uh, a high end furniture maker. And Mm -hmm. so you can imagine that, letterpress really even in the 50s was beginning to uh, slide downward because of other methods of printing Mm -hmm. and they merely moved on to their cabinet line um, as the major source of revenue wow what a storied what a storied history um so do they exist does hamilton manufacturing company exist in some shape or form today well Yes, but um, it was just barely that they hung on. And what happened was as they moved on to medical cabinetry, that uh, becomes laboratory and clinical cabinetry. And they were bought and sold a few times, probably beginning in 1978. I think that's the last time it was simply known as Hamilton Manufacturing. And they were everything from American medical supply to Hamilton Fisher, because Fisher made uh, Mm -hmm. laboratory and clinical products. So when I began at Hamilton, um, or even began volunteering, they had not been Hamilton manufacturing for a long time. Mm -hmm. And Thermo Fisher ran the plant until 2012. And I was uh, brought into the main office because the museum was within their complex. And these are people who don't really care about the museum, Jordan. They had allowed us space to work out of, but truly it's not as though their employees even knew what we were up to. They had abandoned type so long ago. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyway, Thermo Fisher decided that Two Rivers was not a profitable plant anymore. And so they um, chose to close it down, and they gave us our our walking papers. And um, so they sold off everything, and there was 
something of a venture capitalist firm that uh, venture capital, maybe not venture capitalist. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, they took the operations, moved them to the fringes of Green Bay, and ran it into the ground at an impressive rate. I think within about a year or so, um, that was ready to go into uh, liquidation and bankruptcy. So about the time that was to completely end, a former sales manager for Thermo Fisher Mm -hmm. uh, decided to buy the rights and begin manufacturing furniture just south of here in Manitowoc. And he chose to call his company Hamilton Scientific because that's Mm -hmm. the primary product they're making. So today, Hamilton is actually, uh, in a sense, on the rebound as this company has um, done quite well and has begun making things again. But Wow. Obviously, type is not a part of that, nor is anything printing related at <laughs> right. all. Well, so tell me, tell me about that moment that I guess you 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 said you got the walking papers. I mean, what was what was that like? You've been in the you've been running the museum for several years now. You know, I'm, I'm sure you've been growing. Interest has been growing during that time in letterpress, uh, and then you know that 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 to me seems like a very trying time for you guys. Oh, it was. Um, you know, one of the things uh, about me getting hired was the fact that the Woodtime Museum was losing money at a pretty quick rate. They had no classes unless you as the teacher brought your own students in, and there was no store there, and the it was kind of a mess in a lot of ways. So my idea was that we should operate like a business and attempt to at least be solvent. And we were doing a great job of that, I thought, and we were pretty much breaking even. We had done a product line with Target stores, and that brought in a fair amount of income. But I was preparing for our annual conference, which in printer's terms is a ways goose. And so it's about three days before the conference begins in, I think, 2011, And to be called into the main offices was something that really did not happen. Um, I had been in contact with them occasionally about expanding our footprint in the old factory, but at the same time, I saw people getting laid off. So the handwriting was on the wall, but nobody knew for sure what was going to happen. So when they asked me to come over there and lay down the law, which is we are moving out of town, we're closing the company, you've got five months to get out. I I really couldn't even think about it, you know, because number one, I'm trying to plan for a conference in a couple of days. And, you know, how do you do that? I, I have to say they were kind enough to give us that space in the old factory rent-free. The downside of that is the Two Rivers Historical Society, who founded the museum and essentially controlled us, was not planning for that day where we would have to move out of the place and find a new building. So, first of all, you realize you can't just close and start packing up tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So, that basically meant we knew we needed to uh, take some time to alert our 
uh, our audience that this place was going to close. And so at the end of the year, we decided that's when we would close up and start packing. We didn't know where we were going to go. We didn't know if we were going to have enough money to go anywhere. Mm. And we began something of a grassroots campaign via Facebook and our website where we enlisted all of our friends and members and, uh, you know, associated people to try and help us to move. <clears throat> but even there, we could not find anywhere in Two Rivers that was big enough or uh, ideal enough for us to move into. So when January of uh, 2012 began, we were packing up without even knowing what was going to happen to the stuff. And so we finally found this building that we are in now, but it seemed far too big. And at $400,000, where was that money going to come from? Mm -hmm. So the great thing about our audience is that they stepped up in the best possible way. It was just unbelievable that really hundreds of people were contributing everything from, you know, a $7 check from Croatia to larger donors that were basically giving us enough money to buy this building and to move in. And so it was, it was just a remarkable thing to see happening because Instead of offering workshops for printing, we were offering um, volunteer weekends to pack up the collection. And mm -hmm. those things were filling. You know, in other words, these are people who are saying, sure, I will drive from, you know, anywhere from uh, cities around us to Rochester, New York, and places beyond where they would drive here for a weekend, help us pack for two days, and head back home. Wow. And that's why it worked, because yeah. so many people said, no, this is worth saving. And um, it uh, it was pretty impressive to watch. But, you know, again, there is something of that uh, fragileness, because once you get the building, you've got to fix it up, and then you've got to sustain it. And we were closed um, until November of 2012 when we reopened for the Waze Goose that year. And, you know, to some extent that hasn't changed. In other words, we still need to make sure that we're funded well because we've got a great collection and uh, a, a lot to do. So you're always hoping that, you know, you can find that next uh, source of funding just to keep the doors open next year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. What a, that's, this is such an amazing story and it is really cool. Uh, it, it does seem like the letterpress community is a very supportive, very tight knit, uh, and it just what an amazing story to kind of resurrect you guys from, uh, you know, almost like, a uh, that, that, that meeting, I can't imagine what it was like to kind of receive that, those papers and then to, to be able to rally and, and move somewhere even bigger, you know, that's, that's amazing. Uh, you guys, so you guys have, I think I've read on your website over a million, like, is that a, is it 1.5 million pieces of type or, or sets or? That it is a, a million and a half pieces. Although I have to confess, I have not counted. Um, <laughs> I was going to ask you if you counted when you guys moved uh, <laughs> to the new shop. That's <laughs> 
Uh, we did not, but I can tell you that we've acquired a fair amount of type since then. So I'm pretty confident of that. And, um, there is a little video that we created last year. And one of the people who is interviewed in it is a member of our artistic board, David Shields, who is something of a type authority. And he describes the museum as being the primary source of primary information, which I, I think is accurate and um, a little humbling at the same time, because it it is a huge collection and possibly the biggest in the world. So um, someday maybe I'll count it, but I'm going to need help. <laughs> yeah. Well, so one thing you mentioned, I, I want to ask you about, you said uh, the annual conference in, in printer's world is called Ways Goose. So actually I have not familiar with that. Can you explain that to me? I've seen Ways Goose all over the place in letterpress websites, but I have never had that. I've never heard that explanation. I didn't know what it meant, I guess. Well, it is a loose term these days, but just like a lot of the American printing methodologies, it comes from England. And mm. in at the end of fall, a print shop would prepare for winter. And so that's everything from covering up the windows uh, for the time of year when you're going to be working by candlelight to uh, an apprentice um, basically throwing a banquet for the fellow printers. And the primary food served at that event is a goose. So Ways Goose is really something of an end-of-year uh, mm -hmm. printer's banquet, if you will. And my dictionary says that um, uh, that basically it was that, that the uh, apprentice would throw uh, a, a party for the fellow printers, and but that in more recent times, it's really a printer's picnic or a printer's gathering, which is pretty much what it has turned into. So you do see them from place to place. And, you know, ours is a type conference and a printing conference and uh, design and, and things like that all rolled into one. Uh, some of them are, are more or less formal. But, you know, in the end, it's a gathering of printers to, I don't know, basically uh, tell a lot of tall stories and pat <laughs> each other on the back, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, thank you for explaining that. I, I had never known quite what it meant, but I've seen it all over the place, uh, the Ways Goose. Um, so that's, I, I know probably a lot of other people will appreciate that. Well, one thing I want to ask, so now you guys are in your new space. You've got over a million pieces of type. Uh, I, I think you've got a lot of presses. So kind of what is, what's your normal, what are you guys doing now? Are you, you know, you're offering workshops, you got visitors to the museum. Well, it goes back to the idea that Hamilton is a working museum. And so mm -hmm. the fact is the printing equipment needs to be operable and the workshops are are not simply a money-making venue. They're a way of extending the education of printing, mm -hmm. which is truly our, our main mission. And so, yes, we're, we're doing everything from giving tours to uh, teaching printing to archiving the collection. And 
that in itself becomes uh, a major job in itself. And what that amounts to is looking at the collections of type and printing specimens of them. But we have acquired two big collections, which, um, oh, I guess it, it multiplied our work many times over. And wow. I think the first collection came from Globe Printing out of Chicago, and they donated about 2,000 blocks and 135 massive boxes of type, wow. uh, none sorted. Oh. So, yeah, so oh. cleaning that and organizing that and proofing that and getting it into something of a database is a massive challenge and we're we're basically to a point where that's pretty well under control but then you can use that stuff for a lot of different things just to reveal printing history and therefore american history mm -hmm. um but as if that was not enough to keep up with we became aware of a collection that um, was available almost two years ago. And we refer to that as the Enquirer collection because it came from Cincinnati's Enquirer Printing Company. These people are fourth-generation printers who had a variety of customers, but primarily circus-based. And they were considering just dumping their collection of beautifully hand-carved blocks and so we were offered an opportunity to purchase that. And the Globe collection was almost a semi's worth of stuff. And because of the smallness of our staff, I'd say it took about seven years to get organized. Well, Enquirer is five times bigger. <clears throat> so... um when I have time, I go into the back and I open one of a hundred plus crates. And it's phenomenal because Enquirer was a really high-end printer. So uh, yesterday, for example, a volunteer was putting together a framework for display purposes. And what we are trying to do here is both illustrate the collection for you as the visitor, mm -hmm. but also to assess its printability, which is quite high, and then just seeing what we've got. So we're documenting that, and we brought in a collections management professional this summer to begin unpacking and photographing and shelving these things. And it's, it's a phenomenal collection, Jordan. It is everything from Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey, um, massive blocks that would print uh, a leaping tiger, you know, and that wow. poster ends up being 12 by 7 feet, um, to realizing that I have box upon box of, um, you know, Clarendon condensed uh, that's a foot and a half or two feet tall. And so we're we're trying to catalog everything, and uh, there's always those weird anomalies like the Ripley's Believe It or Not freak show blocks. So <laughs> if you were wondering whatever happened to Hoppy, the uh, woman with the frog's body, I do have those blocks now. <laughs> um, and um, 
uh, Leora, the girl with the radio mind. Um, I, I have those blocks as well as just a massive collection of, uh, Americana circus poster design, as well as a lot of other things. So, you know, Johnny Lynch and his daredevil drivers are blocks of, uh, cars that, you know, basically would uh, go on display and they would roll them over for you to prove that the 1939 Dodge was pretty damn durable, you know? <laughs> wow. Um, and so it's, uh, it is why I say that printing history is American history, because you look mm -hmm. at these things and they go back to the turn of the previous century. And, you know, some of them are just stunning advertising blocks. And some of them are uh, extremely insensitive because, you know, we, uh, we have that within our history as well, but it's very interesting uh, from that standpoint that it is still the way uh, people thought and advertised mm -hmm. on a grand basis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. I can imagine the treasures you just you go and open a crate and all the things that uh, just kind of pour out. That 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 must be so fun and exciting. Just never know what you're going to get next. You know, Christmas every day, Jordan. Yeah. You know, it's, um, and it'll take uh, probably uh, a couple of years at least until we get this better under control. But um, I will tell you um, that at the Ways Goose this year, one of the presentations will be me leading people through the back storage area. Because I think it's, while it's nice to tour the museum and look at the presses and things like that, we want to give people a sense of what is to come. And so I'll let people sort of see that, that press room graveyard in addition to, uh, you know, thousands of blocks of uh, advertising history. Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. Well, one thing I wanted to ask you, it seems to me that there is a very dense population of letterpress history in the Midwest. Why is that? Um, I think that there's a, a number of reasons, but um, Chicago, for example, has uh, just an amazing printing history. But when you look at the map, they are right in the middle and so that allows for a distribution east, west, north, and south uh, from a very convenient way. But then there's also the expansion of the country from that standpoint that a lot of the methods that were used to make and print those blocks occurred in the late 19th century. And so, uh, for example, Cincinnati at one point was sort of the end of that westward expansion for a period of time. And they were able to provide type and presses and everything else for everybody west of there. And so for the same reason that Chicago became a printing center mm -hmm. um, and St. Louis became a printing center and even in Milwaukee, south of here, you had German immigrants who brought uh, both uh, beer and uh, and printing methodologies. So, you know, they were advertising the fact that you had all these artists uh, that were coming to this area who were both uh, versed in printing and 
in um, uh, occupations that that needed uh, that new way of advertising mm-hmm. on a grand scale. It's not as though letterpress was new uh, at the end of the 19th century, but on the other hand, we were beginning to advertise in bigger and newer ways because right. you could, you know, put that poster on the side of a building or a barn or something like that, or you could um, uh, send type via train to, you know, parts west or really anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so uh, so my wife and I, we've only got, I think we've got maybe three sets of type in our, our in-home studio, but we've got two sets of wood type. And I'm, I'm curious, having possibly the world's largest collection of wood type, if you have some, I guess, best tips or, or suggestions for things like the best ink to use or, you know, what type of press does wood type work best for? Well, um, good questions. And one of the things that I'm happy about is the fact that brand new printing ink works really great on 100-year-old blocks. Hmm. So what we've been really fortunate to get is donations of ink from offset printers. And when people say, what do you primarily use? I often say primarily what I've been given. But... um, (laughs) The nice thing about it is if you went to a local print shop and said, do you guys have inks that, um, you know, were mixed to the wrong color or you had to buy five pounds of purple for a job that only needed, you know, one pound, they're usually quite generous at giving that stuff away. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe not always, but we've really been lucky that way. And so I know that there are inks specifically designed for relief printing. But that said, you can do incredible work um, by just using standard offset inks. The consistency is just fine for letterpress printing. Um, So the same, in a sense, is true with paper. Um, You know, it's not as though you need a letterpress paper to work on. Mm-hmm. So, again, there are paper distributors all over. There are printers who had to buy uh, papers that were discontinued, and you can usually get a, a fairly good deal from them, and if not, you can certainly buy paper from them. From a press standpoint, I think that it kind of depends on how deeply you want to delve into this. And so what I mean there is a lot of printers are familiar with the Vandercook proofing press because the registration is great. Uh, A cylinder type of um, uh, pressing is uh, ideal for a lot of things, but they've gotten remarkably expensive. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's because of the interest, you know, supply and demand. But, what I think is almost ideal for a new printer is uh, a true proofing press uh, or a, what is also called a sign press or a show card press. And they've got like a 15 by 20 inch imprint and you have a clamp for gripping your paper. Um, they probably weigh nearly a uh, hundred pounds, but that's kind of the ideal starter press. Now, that said, they too have gotten extremely expensive. The older 
proofing presses don't allow you quite as much registration capability because that wasn't what they were designed for. However, um, they're also cheaper for that reason. So Mm -hmm. when I get people in the workshop and they want to know where they can get a press, I tell them the best way to do that is to basically take a road trip and check smaller towns' print shops and see what they may have in the back. I think that printers are often kind of notorious for just sort of shoving those things into the back room as they become Mm -hmm. less useful. And while you can go to somewhere like Briar Press online and find a classified market for it, um, you could go to eBay, but you're going to probably pay way too much on eBay as well. Uh, But, you know, that sort of uh, uh, longer search by simply uh, driving around and looking often yields the the best results financially because these are people who are not trying to make a profit necessarily on it. They're merely looking to get rid of a massive piece of steel they don't need. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Um, Go ahead. Well, I was going to say the other type of press a, a, a platen press, which is more production-based, is heavy. You know, you're looking at 750 pounds and maybe a a five by five footprint. So it may not work, um, you know, in your living room. But on the other hand, those can be gotten at a great price, and it's a little more work, uh, but they're they're ideal presses for working on as well. Mm-hmm. So. It, uh, that's why I say it kind of depends how seriously you want to get into it. Um, they are out there. It just demands a, a little bit of legwork to figure out, you know, what and where. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing that has uh, really been happening in letterpress is the use of polymer plates, you know, and a lot of people with letterpress, they, you know, they, they envision that uh, impression in the paper that you can feel and see, and a lot of, you know, wedding invitations these days will have that type of impression. But we've talked about previously on the show that that was kind of uh, a, no, a no-no in, in historical letterpress printing. And, you know, one of the things I was thinking about with wood type is I was wondering, is that even possible to, I mean, I, to, to get an impression like that? I think given the surface area, it seems like you, you almost just, the kiss is kind of the only way you can print that on there. Well, you're you're pretty right. Although, if you um, if you print badly, meaning you over imprint, you will get an impression. Mm-hmm. And you know, the I have nothing against polymer because it's incredibly uh, advantageous, particularly when you want to design on the computer. You know, mm-hmm. if you don't have the type um, or the time to set it all, so you have. People at very high-end, Studio on Fire in Minneapolis is a great example. People who are running big uh, sheet-fed Heidelbergs and doing gorgeous work. But, you know, in the end, as you suggest, there is that KISS impression, which is ideal. And the printer's job was to be able to create that great impression without over-imprinting the sheet. And... 
you know, think of a book page. If you if you're creating uh, a mark that you can feel on two sides of the sheet, you got braille. You don't have printing. You know. <laughs> So um, you have to be aware, too, that when you create that deep impression, you are um, wearing out your rollers faster as well as your impression cylinder. So it comes at a little more of a cost. And in the end, a deep impression is really a holdover from the sort of traditional engraved invitation. And those were made with copper plates, which were... Uh, generally not reused, but the you wanted that effect of uh, a very um, oh um, uh, noticeable imprint on the sheet uh, mm-hmm. that that you could see and feel, and so it was something of a status thing. The engraved invitation was the high end invitation, so um, you know if you use uh, polymer, it has that ability to look great, but if you're indenting the sheet simply because you think that is a letterpress um, thing to do, that really isn't the point. I think you're you're looking to definitely damage your type. Um, we typically um, are teaching people that if you can easily feel the impression on the back of your print in a workshop, you're using too much pressure. The idea is become so skilled at it that you can make a much lighter um, uh, kiss as opposed to a punch, I mm-hmm. guess. Right, right, right. Well, well, look, Jim, thank you so much for, for taking the time. Um, where can people find you online? And also, what are the details for your upcoming uh, Waze Goose? <laughs> um, well, the Waze Goose is November 4th, 5th, and 6th this year and if you go to woodtype.org org you can get to our website and you can sign up online um we did sell out last year i think the capacity um of uh, attendees is roughly about 250 people so um going to the website is the best way to to connect with us there and um you know, certainly there is uh, a lot you can find out just by going to the Hamilton website, too, in terms of finding out when you can take a class or possibly volunteer or intern or or maybe just uh, see what we've been up to. Mm-hmm. But, Jordan, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about it because, um, uh, obviously, I think it's important. But, uh, you know, it's nice to be able to tell people what's going on and, and why we're doing it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I totally agree. Also, where can people find you in person? I don't know that we actually mentioned where you guys are physically located. Oh, well, you, you, mentioned um, it. you mentioned it. Yeah. Well, two rivers. No, but, uh, you know, I was in Madison um, on Monday. And so we were telling people we we're in two rivers, Wisconsin. And the next question is, where's that? So, <laughs> Um, but I'm looking out the window here at Lake Michigan. And so about three hours north up the lakeshore from Chicago or an hour and a half from Milwaukee is where we sit. And so, um, you know, we're, we're here from Tuesday through Saturday in the winter and, uh, even Sunday afternoons at this time of year. So, 
Uh, people can come in and visit just about every day um, and uh, either take a tour or wander on their own or, you know, um, just look at the uh, website store if they want to get a letterpress poster for themselves. Hamilton uh, is cutting new type also, so that that is something we didn't talk too much about, but the pantograph is working, and we have a new font that we will release at Ways Goose this year. So we do have uh, people ordering sets of type from us. We're trying to ramp up production a bit, if you will, but um, yeah, if you if you need information or if you just want to um, talk shop, you know, we're around. Hey folks, thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Jim Moran, the museum director for Hamilton Wood Type and Printing Museum. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, please let others know about it. Uh, leave a review in iTunes and subscribe. It'll help other folks find the show who may be interested in letterpress also. Uh, for links and references to a lot of the topics we covered you can visit the website letterpressdigest.com slash three. That's the number three. There's also an email list there that you can sign up for uh, to hear more about the show and a little bit about why I started this podcast. Uh, if you have ideas or thoughts for uh, future guests or topics, I am always happy to hear them. You can contact me through the website or find me on social media as well at Letterpress Digest. Until next time.